The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We'll be working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. In today's the next passage we come to is Genesis 13, 1 through 14, 16. So I'll be reading a section of the verses from that passage. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into Negeb. Now Abram was rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. If not the whole land before you, separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the land, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give you into your offspring forever I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted arise walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Merim which are at Hebron and there he built an altar to the Lord May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. Um, And we pray what Jesus prayed in John 17. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We understand from this that your word isn't just true, but indeed the very standard of truth itself. So please, use your word by your spirit to sanctify your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like there are some things that people make complicated that don't really have to be that complicated. Um, Relationships, uh, personal finance, I don't know, dieting, exercise, 
parenting, you name it, it seems like we find a way to overcomplicate it. And I think that's especially true with this idea of faith. If someone asked you to explain to them the meaning of faith, how would you respond? What does it mean to have faith? It seems to me that the word faith nowadays often ends up being this rather vague term. I know I hear people use the term faith really in all sorts of different ways, and I'm not always sure what they mean, or sometimes even sure they're sure what they mean. Yet in the Bible, faith is simply believing what God tells us. That's the simplest definition of faith I can come up with, (laughs) believing what God tells us. Or we might say trusting God's promises or taking him at his word. So biblically speaking, this means we can't just have faith in something uh, simply because we want it to be true. There has to be a word from God or a promise God's made that's behind our faith. Having faith apart from a word or promise from God is actually not biblical faith at all, but rather presumption. In order for our faith to be more than presumption, it has to be rooted in something God said or a promise he's made. And it's important for us to understand that because faith is absolutely foundational to our relationship with God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews eleven six that without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you picture the Christian life as a journey, faith is the very ground upon which we walk as we travel on that journey. It's the means by which we receive all of God's blessings and by which we even come into a relationship with God in the first place. In order to become a Christian, we have to put our faith in Jesus to save us from our sins because of what he accomplished on the cross in paying for our sins. However, that's just the beginning because God not only invites us to be saved through faith, he also also calls us to live a life of faith. Faith is not only the way we become Christians, but also the lifelong pattern according to which we live as Christians. The Christian life is a life of faith. So what then does that life of faith look like? Well, that's what we'll be discussing this morning as we work our way through Genesis 13.1 through 14.16. The main idea of this passage is quite simple, that Abram lived a life of faith. Abram lived a life of faith. And Abram, by the way, is um, the same guy who would later become known as Abraham when God changes his name, but for the time being, he's just Abram. Now, to remind you of the context here, God made an important promise to Abram back at the beginning of the previous chapter. Remember, we said that faith is believing what God tells us, right? So here's what God told Abram back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it actually gets even better because after Abram obeyed God by leaving the city where he was living and venturing out as God had told him to do, God adds an addendum to his original promise. He appears to Abram again and says to him in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. You're talking about the land of Canaan. And so all that together is the multifaceted promise God made to Abram that serves as the foundation for the rest of Abram's life and really of the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, as we saw last week, Abram didn't always exemplify uh, this life of faith. He started out strong by leaving his hometown and venturing out in faith, but he then stumbled in a pretty significant way when a famine in Canaan forced him to travel to Egypt temporarily and live there for a time, he told a pretty big lie in Egypt about Sarai supposedly not being his wife, but rather uh, being his sister. And it totally blew up in his face with the result that Abram and his wife Sarai and also his nephew Lot were forced to leave Egypt in disgrace. I mean, just thinking in terms of a modern parallel here, sometimes I like to picture things. You know, I just picture Abram and the three of them in a car, just driving out of Egypt, you know, on I-95 or whatever it is, headed out of Egypt. And, you know, Abram's there at the steering wheel, and Sarai's just kind of staring blankly out the passenger side window, and Lot's, I don't know, fidgeting with his fingers in the back seat, and just the awkward silence, you know, that must have filled that car. And, you know, maybe Sarai said something like, well, now that went well. I don't know. Um, so Abram was far from perfect and had some, a pretty significant lapse of faith while he was in Egypt. And yet in his subsequent behavior, as we'll see in our main passage today, Abram was still quite exemplary in his faith overall. And as we work our way through Genesis 13 and 14, I'd like to draw your attention to four characteristics of a life of faith. Abram lived a life of faith, and there are, these are four characteristics of his life that we see in this passage. First, returning to God after lapsing into sin. Returning to God after lapsing into sin. After Abram totally blew it in Egypt, here's what we read in Genesis 13, 1 through 4. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first and Abram called, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram didn't wallow in sorrow or discouragement or guilt as a result of his lapse of faith in Egypt. 
or allow this, isn't it, to keep him from seeking God? Instead, we see in verse 4 that he returned to the altar he had previously made at Bethel. And it says, called upon the name of the Lord once again. And that location is very significant. The altar at Bethel represented a time in Abram's life when he had an incredibly close relationship with God and, and experienced God's presence in a glorious way as he worshipped and offered sacrifices at that altar. And so by retracing his steps back to that altar, he's essentially trying to get back to that close relationship with God and renew his connection with God and rekindle his love for God. So let me just ask, what about you? Have you strayed from God with the result that you're now in need of returning to where you used to be spiritually? Perhaps you need to go home this afternoon and consider the words of Jesus in Revelation 2, 4 and 5, where he says to the church of Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Brothers and sisters, don't let your sins overshadow God's grace. Remember that as Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So whenever you fall down, let the knowledge of God's grace lift you back up and get you headed in the right direction once again. Recognize your sin and grieve over your sin, but don't wallow in it. Repent of it and move on. Stand on the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful. And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one key feature of a life of faith. And one that we certainly see in Abram back in Genesis 13. And a second characteristic of the life of faith that we see in Abram is passing the test of prosperity. Passing the test of prosperity. Verse 2 tells us that uh, now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And part of that wealth had been in Abram's possession for a long time, since before God had originally called him to leave his hometown. And then, through all of his uh, shenanigans in Egypt, he actually left Egypt with a considerable amount of additional wealth. Those of you who were here last week may remember that when Pharaoh took Sarai to be his wife, Genesis 12, 16 states that he made Abram a very rich man. And he gave him uh, things like sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, some of those possessions, by the way, like camels, they were things that only the ultra-rich people had back in that day. So, you know, if Abram were left today, he probably would have been, you know, flying places in his private jet and uh, driving around in a Lamborghini and things like that. Like, he was one rich dude. 
And uh, that's a good reminder for us that it's not unspiritual or ungodly to be rich. In fact, uh, many of the godliest men in the Old Testament were actually quite wealthy. However, the Bible warns us that material wealth can be very hazardous to us at times. It presents us with unique dangers and temptations. In many ways, I would say material prosperity is actually one of the most difficult tests that we can face in life. And maybe that's surprising to you. And I think many times we often view various forms of adversity as the most difficult tests that people can endure. And don't get me wrong, there are many different kinds of adversity that uh, are unbelievably difficult, and I in no way want to minimize that. However, from what I've seen at least, it seems as though Christians by and large do a lot better in the midst of uh, those kinds of adversity than they do in the midst of the test of prosperity. I mean, think about it. Those of us who are Christians, when we experience adversity, we're well aware of how desperately we need God and are usually led to cry out to God for help with the result that the seasons of greatest adversity in our lives are often also the seasons of the greatest spiritual growth. But that's not the case with prosperity, is it? Instead, material prosperity often has a way of dulling our senses, and especially our sense of how much we need God, and causing us to drift away from God, and leading us into spiritual complacency and self-sufficiency. If we're not careful, wealth and, and, and prosperity can have a corrupting effect on our lives. And it may not be even very apparent at first. We might seem to be doing okay on the outside, but like wood that's been infested with termites, we might not be okay at all on the inside. That's why there's no shortage of warnings in the Bible related to wealth. Just to give one example, in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul warns us, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And returning to Genesis 13, we can also see this tendency in Abram's nephew, Lot, right? As we'll see in a few moments, Lot devotes himself to the pursuit of material wealth, and it eventually leads him away from God and into what can only be described as tragic spiritual ruin and destruction. Yet Abram is quite different. Although Abram was quite wealthy, he didn't let that wealth draw him away from God. Instead, as we've seen in, in verse 4, Abram called upon the name of the Lord from his altar in Bethel. 
And then, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, Abram settles in a place called Hebron and builds another altar to the Lord so he can continue calling upon the name of the Lord. So just be aware that it takes great faith to pass the test of prosperity. And I think we could also add ease and comfort in life to that. And make no mistake, that is a test that I believe the vast majority of us face as American Christians. This isn't a sermon for the billionaires or millionaires. This is a sermon for the vast majority of us at a point that we need to take to heart. Will we be found faithful? And now just ask yourself, how has your relationship with God been affected by prosperity? And then moving on, a third and closely related characteristic of life, or of a life of faith, is exhibiting open-handed generosity. Exhibiting open-handed generosity. Genesis 13 records that Abram and Lot were so wealthy that the land in which they were dwelling couldn't even support both of them anymore. Um, It says that there was strife between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And so we read in verses 8 through 12, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, Abram's generosity is particularly remarkable if you consider the culture back then. Uh, Because in ancient culture, the Abram, as the older man and as the uncle of Lot, would be viewed as entitled to the first pick. And yet, he didn't exercise that privilege, did he? But instead, he invited Lot to pick what he wanted first and then was uh, willing to take what remained. That's quite the change from the way Abram had conducted himself in Egypt, isn't it? I mean, instead of being shrewd and self-serving, Abram's now remarkably different. And the reason is simple. Abram was now functioning in faith. He was trusting God's promise from chapter 12 that one day, not just a part of the land, but the whole land would be given to his descendants. Don't miss that. God had promised Abram that one day his offspring would possess the entire land, including both the the, the Jordan Valley that Lot chooses and the land of Hebron where Abram eventually settles, and as well as a whole lot more land as well. As one commentator writes, Abram knew that even if he gave the land away a thousand times, it would still Go to his descendants. And in case Abram needed any reminding, God reaffirms his promise to give Abram that land in verses 14 through 17 of our main passage. 
and is actually even more specific in this reaffirmation of the promise than he had been in the original promise. In a similar way, those of us who are Christians are likewise able to exhibit open-handed generosity as we, like Abram, trust in the promises God's made to us. Not only has God promised to provide for all of our earthly needs, he's also promised us unfathomable treasures in heaven, right? As 1 Peter 1.4 says, an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade. So brothers and sisters, should we not be the most generous people on the face of the earth? And when you consider the immeasurable wealth that we possess and that we'll get to enjoy for all eternity and the blessings we enjoy even now, you know, every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1.3 says, then what difference do uh, you know, a few dollars of earthly currency make? You know, for a Christian to be stingy is uh, kind of like... I don't know, a a billionaire trying to negotiate for a lower price at the Dollar Tree, you know? It's just not necessary. It's actually kind of ridiculous. If you really understand the the treasures that you possess in Christ, you'll you'll stop being stingy and you'll instead exhibit open-handed generosity toward other people, just as Abram exhibits to Lot here in Genesis 13, and hopefully an even greater generosity. And it's all rooted in faith. Just as Abram's generosity rests on the confidence that God would fulfill his promise in giving him the entire land of Canaan, our generosity likewise rests on God's promises to us, both of earthly provision and of heavenly inheritance. And then a fourth and final characteristic of the life of faith is engaging in bold endeavors for God. Engaging in bold endeavors for God. We're not going to read the whole story, but in Genesis 14, 1 through 16, there's a big battle among the kings of this region. And it says kings in the text, but really these are more like petty kings who were each over a single city. Uh, so it's not like an enormous you know, world war or something or anything like that. But it does involve an alliance of five kings against an alliance of four kings. And Lot, who's now living in Sodom, becomes caught up in this conflict and is actually captured and taken away. We then read in verses 14 through 16, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house. 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram shows surprising ability in leading his men into battle under the cover of night, right? And rescuing his nephew Lot. 
Uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't really have a picture in my mind of Abram as such a mighty warrior up until this passage, right? Until I read this story. So, you know, even at age 75 plus, uh, Abram was, I guess, packing some heat, you know? And he goes all Rambo on these, these four kings. And, and uh, I, I guess he probably became something of a, a legend in that region. I don't know. I, I imagine word got around that, you know, what Abram had done and everyone knew, like, wow, like, don't mess with Abram. Like, that dude's crazy. Don't mess with his family either. But that's really a part of a life of faith, engaging in bold endeavors for God. In the words of the 18th century missionary, William Carey, faith enables us to expect great things from God and therefore attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. You see, like Abram, we also have a rescue mission that's been set before us. Only our rescue mission, of course, is spiritual rather than physical. God has called us to spend our lives, risk our lives, and even give our lives, if necessary, for the sake of the gospel. He's called us to faith-driven boldness in spreading everywhere the sweet fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. This boldness is faith-driven in the sense that it's not something that we whip up out of nowhere, but rather something that rises out of faith. The faith we have in the promises of God. Faith that God's Spirit dwells within us. Faith that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Faith that he'll always give us the right words to say to people at the right time. Faith that his words will never return empty, but will always accomplish what he desires. And faith that regardless of what happens to us in the course of telling people about Jesus, that our future is secure. It's faith in God and in these specific promises God's made that drives our witness. This faith enables us to overcome the the fear and timidity that we often have and to relinquish our desire for control and to embrace wholeheartedly the missionary calling that we've been given as Christians. So what specifically is God calling you to do? What, What... Conversations is he calling you to have? Which neighbor is the Holy Spirit prompting you to invite over for dinner? Which coworker is he laying on your heart to maybe have an evangelistic Bible study with? What other bold steps of faith is the Spirit leading you to undertake? Friends, our time on this earth is short. And eternity is long. So let's make good use of the time that we have in laboring for the advance of the gospel. And as we think about Abram rescuing Lot, 
here in Genesis 14, it's also worth noting that that's essentially what Jesus has done for us. Jesus didn't sit around in heaven idly waiting for us to be deserving of rescue. He left the glories of heaven on a mission to rescue us from a mess that was a mess of our own making. He entered the fray and engaged in cosmic battle against the forces of evil that eventually resulted in him being crucified on a Roman cross. See, unlike Abram, Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life on the cross. Yet it was all a part of the plan because when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying to atone for our sins. He endured the punishment that we deserved. Not just physical death, but the full wrath of Almighty God against sin. Jesus suffered that so we wouldn't have to. And so the very death that at first appeared to be a tragic defeat was actually an incredible victory. As was soon demonstrated three days later when Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Jesus now invites us to receive the benefits of all that he accomplished by putting our trust in him. As we've already discussed, the only way that we can be forgiven of our sin and enjoy eternity with God in heaven is through faith. That's the faith we need before we even think about living the ongoing life of faith that we've spent most of our time this morning discussing. And that faith in Jesus doesn't even have to be great faith as long as it's true faith. Because it's not the greatness of our faith that saves us, but rather the object of our faith, what we're trusting in. I once heard it explained in this way. There were two men who wanted to get across a raging river at the bottom of a 100-foot-deep gorge. And the first guy was a man of great faith. So he looked around, and he saw this old rickety bridge, you know, this old Indiana Jones-style bridge comprised of, you know, old wooden planks that all looked half-rotten and about to break, right? And it was just swaying in the wind, 100 feet above the raging river. But remember, this guy was a guy of great faith. And so he strutted out confidently and began to cross that bridge. But when he got about halfway across, several wooden planks broke and he plunged 100 feet to his death into the raging river. So that left the second guy who still wanted to get across the river. But unlike the first man who was a man of great faith, this, this second guy was a man of very weak faith. And of course, seeing what happened to the first guy... You know, made him even more terrified. But he walked a little ways downstream, and, and he found another bridge. And this was a massive interstate highway bridge. Six lanes across, looked like it had been built very recently. But this guy was still so scared that, that he couldn't even walk across the bridge. You know, he had to crawl all the way across. It, it, but it took him a while, but... At the very end, he got to the other side safely. 
So that shows us that it's not the greatness of our faith, but rather the object of our faith that saves us. So it's okay if you don't have great faith as long as it's, of course, true faith, and as long as your faith is directed toward Jesus. That's the critical thing. That's the thing to get this morning. Is your faith directed toward yourself and your own efforts to earn God's favor, your own religious observances, your own efforts to to be a good person and, and, and be a person who can earn God's favor? Or is your faith directed toward Jesus Christ? Can you say with the, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon that my faith rests not in what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, what he has done, and what he is doing for me?